Hello, welcome to Foot Guns. We are recording this on Friday, October 7th. It's me, Wasabi, and uh, Hal. And today I'm really excited uh, to be chatting with Vinay Gupta, who is kind of a, a polymath. He uh, was an early contributor uh, to Ethereum around the time the, of, of its launch and is now the founder and CEO of a company called Materium that does um, basically creates the linkage between NFTs on the blockchain and real world physical items like uh, collectibles or real estate, um, and is also the author of a really interesting book um, called The Future of Stuff, which is a, a, an interesting uh, short read. And I think it, it ties a lot of themes together. Like, like one of the reasons I'm very interested to talk to you is because you're concerned with not only crypto and 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 the technology there but how crypto kind of can impact real world social problems and um you on on twitter your handle is at leashless which i love and you, you tweet often about kind of the big existential risks and and problems of of society and your it seems like it's congruent like these all kind of fit together your work in crypto with uh with uh, the bigger picture stuff of what's going on. So I hope uh, that's a lot to cover, but I hope we can uh, we can get through a lot today. So welcome. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, this, yes, we'll get through a lot today, I guarantee it. <laughs> Good to be here. All right, so uh, let's, I mean, I, I haven't heard you talk really a lot on other podcasts about the early days of Ethereum. So I was, you know, if you could start with like, you know, Take us back to that time at the Ethereum launch. What were you in particular working on? And what was kind of like the expectation that what would Ethereum be? Like what, what were people hoping it would be at, at launch day? Um, wow. So let's see. Uh, I guess I got involved in crypto initially in the 1990s. So I was a cryptographic applications developer by 97 uh doing cryptocurrency stuff in 99 so 100 percent of my income went through an early cryptocurrency in 99 2000 um and then after 9-11 uh i kind of left the field apart from one stint for the u.s office of the secretary of defense working on genocide resistant biometric id card design so i had been kind of an observer in the crypto space because i was mostly camped out in military think tanks at that point um, and I was kind of keeping my nose clean and staying out of it. And then Ethereum came along and it was like, okay, so Turing complete, you know, smart contracts on a platform that will have a currency like Bitcoin. Uh, I'm just about to walk away from my desk here and go do something more fun. Uh, and so I quit my job in military academia, went out, joined the Ethereum team, basically kind of as a writer, writer, community manager, you know, I kind of sort of bounced around a little bit, just kind of taking care of whatever needed done. Uh, and then as we got towards the launch, uh, I was put into a project management role as the release coordinator. And that was both about keeping the community kind of appraised of events and letting them know what was happening and when. But it was also uh, very much about coordinating the team internally so that the, you know, extraordinarily kind of fractious and competitive internal culture didn't result in people choking each other out rather than shipping the goddamn product. Uh, and so I had some very entertaining adventures during that period because Ethereum in those days was a madhouse. It was like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Um, and then we shipped it and everybody was kind of standing around like, oh my God, what have we done? Uh, and they was, knew and, and they knew at this point that monkey pictures were going to be the big thing. 
Oh, I mean, 100% total confidence that air traffic <laughs> control was going to run on smart contracts in 20 years, right? I mean, you know, what the team had figured out was Turing complete coupled with, you know, permanence of data storage and cryptography was just the best computing platform for everything, right? Um, so if you, you know, asked in those days, like, what's Ethereum going to be done for? You know, people would have told you that it was going to be like bigger than, you know, Google Cloud and Amazon Web Services combined within 10 years. But we thought about it very much as being computational infrastructure for everything uh, rather than being cryptocurrency, right? You know, we really thought that it was kind of like a replacement for all of the cloud stuff rather than being like Bitcoin with bells and whistles. Got it. So it was really the programmable smart contracts and the, the fact that it was when you say Turing complete, you mean you can you know program it to do anything that you would be able to program a f another full programming language. Um, yeah, and... actually, I want to I want to push on that and just like really make this boring for our listeners. Um, what do, do you when you when you're saying and you guys were like you know getting together and you're like oh this is Turing complete. Did anyone like actually believe that you could solve you know some hard problem you know something that requires like a lot of computation basically because uh, you know, in my mind, I also like think of Ethereum as this like computer, but at the same time, you know, uh, these smart contracts and these things that people are programming are are really, really low computationally, um, you know, intensive things that need to be done. It, was, is there really like this belief that Ethereum would be able to be like, you know, supporting, um, for instance, like uh, simulations of uh, dark matter or something like that, like you know, things that like supercomputers are doing. Um, well, so I wasn't kidding when I said air traffic control. Like, there's a video that was produced in those days um, called uh, Ethereum, the world computer, or something along those kind of lines. Uh, it, it's one of the early places where you had that kind of gray graphic design with the sort of moving mesh of all the kind of nodes floating around, you know, that era of the Ethereum marketing. Uh, you know, this is before we got into white rainbows and buffycorns and all the rest of that. There was an early phase where it was very, very gray and very technical looking, and it was this kind of mesh uh, look. And in that, you'll see, you know, it's planes on the ground, it's taxis, it's banking. The sort of notion is that it was going to be a single computational backbone for all of the transactional stuff in human society. Um, including safety critical things, including things that would require a ton of compute. And, you know, it was kind of like you know, you could store arbitrarily large files in IPFS. In theory, you could do arbitrarily large amounts of computation on those files using oracles, and then the oracles could write the results of those computations back into IPFS, and then those results could be put back into the blockchain by basically pushing in an IPFS hash. You know, here's the data set, here's the algorithm, I vouch that I processed this algorithm with this data and the results are in this file. And here is the hash of that file. And you wind up doing the computation maybe three or four times to verify and then somebody gets paid for doing the computation. That sort of stuff, the expectation was that, you know, we were going to see huge amounts of computing power that were put directly on the market using this kind of an approach. Got it. So, you know, we talked about your the time of launch and if you look back over this last period, you know, I think a lot of people 
think that we've kind of ended a cycle with this, the Fed tightening and, you know, there's all this uh, DeFi and kind of bubble like behavior and NFT trading going crazy. Like how how do you look back and see, like, are you surprised with with how things have played out so far in terms of the sort of, you know, air traffic control uh, idea at the beginning versus like how things have played out? Like what how do you look back and, and kind of compare what happened to what you thought would happen? Okay, so I mean, here, uh, I you know, I'm going to be a little bit controversial and say where we've wound up is bullshit, right? This is not where we should have wound up, and most of the really, really hard problems that should have gotten concerted, focused, massive attention with big budgets have been totally ignored in favor of just trash. You know, like we really have not done the fundamental computer science work that was necessary to make Ethereum into a huge global power. And so instead, we've been overrun with a bunch of awful fucking goblins, and the result of it is that we have achieved probably 1% of our real potential. Do you think that the kind of number go down uh, price action recently is actually good? Like, is, 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 the, is the explosive price growth and people getting rich overnight, is that kind of like a bug that has held back these other more serious applications? Um. So... The problem here is one of aesthetics, right? If you look at Ethereum from the perspective of, um, you know, parallel computing and sort of old school, like hardcore 1990s, early 2000s style computer science, right? You know, the, the golden age of parallel computing was in the 90s. That's really when we figured a lot of this stuff out. And parallel computing research kind of stopped when Google hit MapReduce and then everything kind of channeled in a new direction. So... <clears throat> the goal of the system, right, should have been to be able to get all of the world's computational resources and storage resources into a single addressable marketplace, right? You have free computing power kicking around, you can sell it. You have free disk cells kicking around, you can sell it. So the idea is that you bind together all of the world's computers into a single distributed meta computer and you use that for pushing transactional volume, right? Now, if you have that as an explicit goal, it doesn't matter whether you finish fund that with VC or whether you fund that with ICOs or whether you fund that with, you know, printing your own money. It doesn't really matter what you do. But what matters is you need a clear, explicit long-term vision, which is we're going to take all of the world's computing power and we're going to make it universally available on demand. So it's the lack of that kind of clear strategic vision from the center, which has resulted in us drifting around, right? You know, we were decentralized to the point where we've been largely unable to perform strategy. And if you can't perform strategy, what you wind up is a Brownian motion random walk where everybody asks on local um, incentives plus random chance. But what you don't get is the large scale world changing strategic sweep, right? You know, the free software movement said, right, hey, free software for everybody. You can do anything you want to do with a computer without infringing your civil rights, right? You have the right to edit the code. You have the right to redistribute the code. You know, Stallman's four freedoms. Because of Stallman's four freedoms, we shot for the moon. And frank frankly, free software largely hit the moon. It's been incredibly successful. It has wound up with a paraticism problem because you've got a lot of free riders like Apple and Google who are taking way more out of free software than they're putting back in. But nonetheless, generally speaking, Stallman's scope of vision has been broadly successful. Um, because Vitalik was very unwilling to play the role of sorcerer king, 
we've wound up in a position where we haven't had much setting a strategy for Ethereum as a whole, and the price that we're paying for that is systemic underperformance. The world is in crisis. We should be able to do something about it. We don't have the power to act effectively because we don't have the power to act effectively. So, so you actually you think Vitalik could have actually pushed harder in in leading the direction of Ethereum earlier on? Um, actually, weirdly, no. I don't think Vitalik was the person to do that. Vitalik is a fantastic kind of Lord Chief Justice, right? He's got a very, very queer aesthetic. He's got a very, very queer set of goals. Um, but, you know, kind of, you know, f- pushing the whole thing forward by force of will towards a long-term vision, not really Vitalik's speed, right? Think of it as being like a church-state separation. Vitalik had one part of the puzzle, and I think Vitalik has executed that part of the puzzle commendably well. He's gotten the thing working in a bunch of very, very complicated and difficult ways. Um, people that could potentially have done the great forward charge, Gavin Wood, most obviously, Joe Lubin, um, <clears throat> you know, some of that energy I think you can see around Cardano. You know, Charles has gone off and done his own thing over there, but it has a sense of momentum. Um, so I think that you know what we're dealing with here is that the original gang of eight, rather than continuing to operate as a cooperative whole and push the entire thing forward, fragmented, and it left us in a position where we didn't have all of the necessary pieces of the puzzle to achieve global transformation. Do you think that um, the things like the merge, L2s, uh, you know, drastically reducing costs, that is going to open up the design space more for some of these more world-changing applications? Oh yeah, without any shadow of a doubt. Just getting off this horrific carbon consumption thing is a gigantic step forward. Ultra cheap transactions. I mean, you know, if you look at like zk EVM type stuff, ultra private, ultra fast, ultra secure, ultra cheap. It's a fantastic transactional environment. So we are getting there, but we're getting there in a way which is very organic and very slow, and. You know, you could say, okay, well, it's decentralized, so you don't have a single point of command, but it's not about having a point of command. It's about having strong leadership that actually sets the long-term direction. And then the kind of swarming behavior is happening around a template rather than being basically random swarming. You know, if we don't succeed in setting these long-term directions, what happens is you get this kind of random walk across the landscape um, while the rest of the world is acting intentionally and is achieving goals. And that is a very, very tricky balance because people are like, oh, well, you know, you make centralized leadership, now you're just the same as the rest of the world. It's like, well, no, there is a difference here, right? Well, so, so it's it sounds to me like, um, you know, if we're, if we're sticking with the analogy that uh, Ethereum is this, like, computer, um, you know, going back to when the iPhone and you know, the, the competitor, like the Android was, you know, going out, the, the biggest thing they did is start incentivizing um, developers to come in and start building applications on top of these things. Right. And it was like a race mm-hmm. to try and, you know, the, the, the big things that they were focused on, how they were competing with each other was like trying to incentivize those developers to come in. And it does seem like there is, you know, Ethereum is just sort of hanging out there and saying, Hey, look, you should go build on it. And there is not a lot of leadership around what should be built on it, right? Um, uh, the, only, the only thing that I've seen really that has a lot of leadership is um, Uniswap, which, you know, is, is sort of like an amalgamation of all these literally universities. You know, it's funny, uh, it took me a while to realize that maybe that's where they came up with the name. But, uh, you know, it's like all this like Harvard and MIT and all these people that have like supported this and they've 
gotten some funding and they're going to go and lobby Congress or something like that. But you know, that, uh, that's like the only thing and it's a tiny thing. Um, and it has nothing to do with, you know, what you're talking about, which is this like wider, which I, I truly believe, uh, in that vision of, yeah, we should get all these computers, you know, connected together, attached to Ethereum and use it as the sort of layer of sending signals, um, you know, and processing data and, um, computing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that as a sort of direction of travel, um, if you don't have that kind of computational power, you can't then displace cloud, right? And displacing cloud is one branch of activity. The other branch is displacing stock markets. So think of the stock markets as these incredibly high performance exchanges where you do, you know, whatever it is, 25,000 transactions a second or whatever the number is. Uh, inside of a high-frequency trading environment, I want to say it's like a million transactions a second. Could that be right? Sounds right. Um, so, you know, those kind of environments are what we're competing with at one end, and then at the other end, you're competing with Amazon's S3, right? Where is all the bulk data stored for, you know, sharing videos of cats? Well, you know, you're either storing it on Amazon service or you're storing it in the decentralized web. Where is all the your rapid trading of commodities happening? Oh, it's either happening in the Chicago Board of Trade or it's happening in the decentralized web. If you want to get the world's com- computation onto your platform, the computer that you offer people has to be effective. And you could have a trade-off where it's maybe 10 times more expensive and 10 times less efficient to use these systems in return for which you get political freedom, you get privacy, you get the end of targeted advertising, you get programmers being paid properly. <clears throat> you can afford a kind of 10 to 1 trade-off on that stuff, but you can't afford a 50,000 to 1 trade-off. So we had to make it fast and we had to make it cheap. And once it was fast and cheap, we had to go out there and we had to systemically bring across all of the world's computation onto our platforms. Right? It really required grand strategy, and grand strategy is something that we've never been able to generate inside of the Ethereum community. So let's see. I believe you used the word goblins earlier, uh, and I know you've been critical of a lot of, of DeFi projects. Like you, you know, you talked about displacing the stock market as a legitimate end state for where this is going. Mm. If you had, you know, if you imagine like the software loading graph, how how far along that? Uh, path are we or have we been derailed and and secondly like are there any specific projects or um, people who are working on this path that you're laying out like the 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 way things should be going that are you know bringing the computation online and making it accessible or onto ethereum and making it accessible and cheap and um, able to be this this global platform Mm. so i mean let's talk a wee bit about you know our goblin problem um Ethereum at this point in the minds of most of the people in the world is synonymous with fraud. Right. And that is a huge disaster. That is a pit from which we may never dig ourselves fully out. So we gave people freedom. Hey, you can put your smart contract onto the chain and your smart contract could do anything and it's uncensorable and it's amazing. Fantastic. Knock yourselves out. What did people do? A thousand and one variations of Ponzi schemes with increasingly sophisticated ways of hiding who's exactly being screwed. And, you know, we've had years of this, right? We've just had years of it. And it's agonizing to see because every fraudulent transaction where somebody's conned into buying something that then somebody rips them off rug pulls and takes the money 
or they put the money into a protocol, the protocol gets hacked, all the money gets pulled out of it, and then they've lost their house. Every time that happens, it brings the probability of this technology changing the world for the good in the long run down another half a percent, right? You know, what we're doing is we're slowly bleeding out the possibility of long-term change because we seem to be unable to get our fraud problem under control. And this is agonizing because at the end of the day, the world is very short of options for creating a better future. The blockchain really is an option for creating a better future. But the option for creating a better future, the power to create the better future, is being abused for absolutely brutally fraudulent short-term gain by a bunch of people that should not be controlling the future of the world. And if you let those people just run amok all over the system without any way of breaking you know, that uh, sort of trend, what happens is that the general public comes to the conclusion that blockchain equals bullshit rip-off artists, and if you put your money in there, you're going to lose it. And then what happens is that gradually culture just kind of papers over it and goes off and does something else, and it winds up as some weird sideshow-like distributed database design. But don't you think that's like maybe the driver of these cycles where you know, there's a loss of faith and then the developers like go and they work really hard and say, look, we lost this faith because of, you know, these reasons. And so we need to harden the network, you know, through these, you know, upgrades. And then you get the upgrade and then everybody comes back in and says, you know what? Okay. Let's, you know, I forgot, I forgot how much it hurt to burn my hand on the fire. Let me, uh, let me try it one more time. You know, like there's a, there's a nasty way that, you know, um, politicians like, you know, play this game of, you know what, people forgot how bad I hurt them. So let's just Mm -hmm. wait five years, right? And then uh, hurt him again. (laughs) Yeah, something like that. You know, um, if we had gotten a serious lid on this in 2018 and just been, you know, Ethereum Foundation or Consensus or one of the other big actors in the space had set up something like a credit rating agency for ICOs, you know, hey, you need to you need to come over here and you need to, you know, register with us and we'll do the audit and da 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 And you know, consensus does have a sort of consensus diligence thing where they will go check out projects and write reports on them and stuff. Um, but you know, there is no and I mean I can't I can't stress this strongly enough, there is no culture in Ethereum that fraud is bad. Right? Nobody says, I mean Think of loot. Do you remember loot? You know, no, actually, it's the opposite, right? Like I was on a, um, I was on an AMA with uh, the Wonderland Discord with Sifu and and Danny and and people were, you know, I mean, it it was a bit of like people were giving them hard questions, but like people were like celebrating them, you know, like pe- pe- the, the Sifu has three hundred thousand followers on on Twitter and and um, you know, I mean, maybe he's not like the worst person in DeFi in the sense that. There's other people that have done done worse things, um, but yeah, it's it's just kind of crazy to me the sort of celebration of the of the hacking that's been going on. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is a product of large scale cultural desperation, right? People are broke; they're terrified. You know, ripping a huge amount of money off from people is a survival strategy for some of the people. Some of the time, will be a kind of short sighted one, but this is what's happening when the space as a whole doesn't have a kind of uh, ethical and moral foundation that is made explicitly clear to people when they enter the space, what's happening is that they're abusing their power to use Ethereum to attack each other, right? You're ripping somebody off. is like burgling their house. And what we have is a situation where Ethereum is being used largely as a tool for people to rob each other. 
how are we going to build a better world if our beautiful engine that could be used to build anything is being used as a crowbar to break into people's houses and steal their life savings? The only uh, bright note that I might have to that, I guess, like, I think house point number one, like, it could be possible that in the same way that the tech bubble of 2000 kind of fueled development that worked out later, perhaps these bubbles and, you know, crazy activities are setting the stage for, for something brighter. And also I, I, as a, you know, I'm kind of a marketer by background and I'm still skeptical how much people think that Ethereum, that, that all of this negativity is redounding to Ethereum rather than the actual app and platform. Like I think a lot of people uh, who hopefully will be onboarded into crypto will be using mobile wallets and things that are more more seamless and they are you know would see themselves as interacting with you know an app or a website or something like that and um, that that is the where the the fraud or either the good or the bad is located but that that's what cognitively is the thing that they're interacting with um, and it might might insulate the the base layer. They say, oh my God, I lost so much money on Coinbase rather than, oh my God, I lost so much money on Ethereum. Yeah, I mean, that's one way it could play out. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think all of that is true, right? To a degree. And, you know, at the end of the day, in spite of all the fraud, the thing is growing, right? In spite of all the fraud, people are slowly, slowly, slowly beginning to roll out really useful apps. Um, but, you know, what I kind of want to point out is like, we're probably, when I say we're running at 1% of our potential right now, I literally mean we're running at 1% of our potential. You know, imagine that if you had something that worked as well as Amazon S3, but it did large block storage in a decentralized way, right? Content addressable storage markets. I hit an API saying, I want this hash. The API goes off and negotiates with a bunch of backends to figure out who can get me the data, how quickly, for how much. I contractually agree using a smart contract for one of those services, and then it delivers me the file and I, I pay it. Right? There has been protocol work about how you would build systems to do that in a really efficient, trustless way. The protocol work is fantastic. We could be doing that for half of the freaking internet. And instead, we've got TikTok ripping off everybody's data and feeding it to the Chinese government. You know, there are geo- Yeah, yeah. So I guess like the point that I'm I'm trying to make is like, like the the nft thing like in my mind was a ddos attack on ethereum right it was like here's a bunch of bullshit that's worthless like you're talking about all these things that are worth computing and then all these people are like you know what i can just go onto this network and start creating this completely you know worthless stuff and trying to sell it to people and you know it worked for a summer right or two summers almost like a year right Mm -hmm. um and and my uh, you know optimism hoping is that uh, this was like um a one-off sort of like you know sort of like the ico thing where uh everyone's uh, hopefully going to learn that these nfts like have a use for a you know computational use and not so much for like a a picture sharing on twitter um and you know but but it did it did um it it showed us a vulnerability of the network right which was okay what if what if there's like a public frenzy right that like that causes people to come and use the network in a bad way. And, and I don't know, I don't know the answer to that. Right. I don't know if, uh, and, and maybe the answer is better organization and, um, you know, um, 
having having a better idea of like where we could be going and like more useful things that could be on the network so that people are like you know it's like a social taboo to be like hey why are you you know minting a worthless picture of a thing that's been minted a hundred thousand times when there's people trying to you know do do real real good and, and real world applications on this network yeah i mean so on the nft thing right the thing that the NFTs brought with them, <coughs> um, the thing that the NFTs brought with them was artists. And no technology is really ever widely adopted until it's useful for artists because technologies are just but ugly until somebody who is good at making beautiful things starts using them and making them beautiful. So in a lot of ways, you know, if you think of sort of like computers before Apple and after Apple, the NFT is a bit like the arrival of the Apple team in the computer, you know, design business, you know, suddenly the blockchain has a beautiful look and feel. It's this particular kind of cartoon graphics. It's this set of color schemes, you know, it's this set of iconography, cultural tropes, you know, fabulous people swanning around in ball gowns talking about how amazing your technology is. Wow. Right. And that kind of razzle dazzle is fantastic. And the art market is an inherently speculative market. Right, So it's not necessarily that the arrival of art speculators is a bad thing. I'm much more concerned about fraud in DeFi where you know it's like, buy this token and you're getting a 30% rate of return. Wow, that's amazing, right? You know, that kind of yield farming stuff is automatically inherently fundamentally unsustainable, but it was dressed up with a bunch of language that made people think that it was a sure bet and they were going to be rich forever. I don't think anybody that bought a board ape was uncertain about why board apes were going to be valuable or not valuable. Right? Either people think board apes are amazing and you get a community around it and the community makes a bunch of movies and games and you know uh, sells the rights on board apes to all kinds of different things and you can commercialize your ape and you know it's kind of like a shared IP portfolio. Like what what would it look like if you were able to buy Scrooge McDuck from Disney in the early days? Um you know, so I think that people could make a rational risk assessment about whether Bored Ape was going to be a good investment or not. The place where I think the real damage is being taken is actually in DeFi, because people are buying tokens that offer them guaranteed income, and then the tokens go bust and they lose all their money. So, you know, I think that it's sort of, how do I say it? It's less obscure and it's less hidden in the NFT market. It's very, very clear this is a collectible and it's either going to go up or down based on other people's behavior. Yeah, well, okay, so... I, I, like the the reason that I disagree with that is that um I'm like I completely agree with you people that bought board apes right like they they bought the right thing but um I like okay so I just pulled up EtherScan gas tracker right now right and the mm. number one user of Ethereum is the Uniswap V3 router and yep. underneath that is Seaport which I actually have no idea what that is I guess like oh, Seaport is uh, re- open that's o- uh, yeah. open C's backend. So they re they renamed it. it. Used to say OpenSea, and then uh, underneath well, that is Seaport's a bunch of new features that OpenSea have built to enable much more complex use of things like splitting of money on the back end of uh, NFT contracts. Right, right. So then underneath that is Tether stablecoin, and then underneath that is Uniswap V2, and then underneath that is one. So basically, it's like it's a bunch of people swapping tokens. There's stablecoins being sent back and forth, and then you yep. have OpenSea. And what I'm just, what I'm saying is like at the height of like the, you know, um, 
what I would call the irrational exuberance. Mm -hmm. uh, if you had gone onto Etherscan, instead of seeing OpenSea as the number one, it would be this like NFT project that you've never heard of that, you know, that's like, um, you know, cats wearing capes or, you know, fish wearing feet or, or like, I, like whatever, like some, you know what I mean? Some, some complete yes. scams. <laughs> and at the same time, like it was driving gas prices on the network to like super high levels. So not only were people losing money by buying, you know, the, the wrong NFT project, they also couldn't go and use a DeFi project. Like, so like, you know, what was the point of getting 30% AP, APY when you had, all these uh, NFT projects just like, you know, sort of making this network really, really, really expensive to use. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just think like the entire thing was like um, the perfect, <laughs> the epitome of a bubble, right? Like everyone on the network was doing all of the wrong things all at the same time, right? Like none of the DeFi protocols were producing anything like worthwhile, um, very few NFT projects. And, it, you know, again, like I think Uniswap is useful. Um, I'm going to go and say like, you know, some of these, I'm not going to name any of them. I do think like Bored Apes is one of the ones that is, is you know, it, it has like a social following to it. Like it makes sense. Like, oh, yeah, but yeah, yeah it's like, you know, um, fish in purple shoes is like not something that like Snoop Dogg is involved in. Right. And like, yeah, Snoop Dogg mm -hmm. buying your NFT is, is a reason to go get involved. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Real cultural power. And, you know, like life imitates art, you know, there is no denial that the arrival of the artists in the blockchain space was a huge event. It's a huge deal crappy horrible speculative art markets like that stuff has come and gone in the fine art world over and over again okay here we got some you know i'm, I'm less worried about the nfts than i am about fraud in DeFi. because if you're a judge right and somebody says when you bought this picture of this monkey did you understand the value could go up or down based on other people's behavior yes your honor well i'm a judge and i reckon that painting of a monkey is not different from paint whether it's done in pixels and sold as an nft or whether it's done in oil paints and sold as a canvas it's an art problem, pathological cycle in the art market. Well, it sucks to be you, right? You should have seen all these people that sold their houses and bought Beanie Babies. In DeFi, it's a little different because in DeFi, what you have is theft on the back end. People sell a product knowing that they're burning investor capital to produce 30% returns. And then the great rug pulling occurs and you know everybody loses all of their money everywhere and it's a disaster. You know, that stuff is really damaging us. All right. Um, let's transition and talk a little bit about um, physical NFTs, which is what your company, Materium, is doing. I'm always fascinated between the links between crypto and sort of the real world, whether that be, you know, what we've seen with incentives, token incentives, um, and uh, the in, uh, attempts to create a connection between objects and NFTs being the next kind of sort of unexplored frontier or, or area that people are just kind of like starting to, to get into. Hmm. So, um, you know, I took a look at, at your company and what you're doing and, and, and my, if I had to make an analogy, it would kind of be to something like Chainlink where what Chainlink is doing is going and taking price prices uh, for different tokens from a variety of different places, centralized exchanges, decentralized exchanges, and um, creating a sort of trusted, 
hybrid or blended price of all those prices. And so like the product there is kind of like a more trusted price for some token. Mm-hmm. And what, what Materium is doing is creating sort of attestations and uh, becoming a source of trust for a connection between an NFT that lives on the blockchain and a physical object or a piece of property in the real world. So what you would do is go in, uh, look at an object. I don't know if you're actually storing the objects physically or inspecting them once or, or how that works, but then creating either a series of contracts or a series like a certificates of authenticity that create a connection between ownership of an NFT and then ownership of a real world asset. Is that a broken analogy or partially correct? How, how would you correct that or, or adjust it? Yeah. I mean, so the Oracle like part is when you look at the NFT, you have to know what's happening in the real world to figure out whether the thing the NFT talks about owning it owns, you know? So that sense is Oracle like I look at an NFT. It says, Hey, I'm a one kilogram gold bar. Okay, I need some kind of Oracle-style input to know whether that NFT really is a one-kilogram gold bar or whether it's nonsense. Uh, And as with any of these kind of protocols, the crypto-economic way that that works is somebody stakes a bunch of value on the fact that this thing is a one-kilogram gold bar, and if they're wrong, they lose their value. Very much like any Oracle protocol. And then the second part of that is a set of machinery or methodology so that when you cash the NFT in to get your gold bar, you actually get your gold bar. Got it. So let's, um, I don't know, let's, let's go, I, I, my brain works through concrete examples. So let's, let's go through the gold bar kind of like, and, and deconstruct it piece by piece. So I know you have, you know, I've seen the link on OpenSea to a NFT of a, little video that says this is a, this is a gold bar. So can you yeah. just kind of go super deep into that and go start to finish about how that works? Yeah, so rather than the gold bar, why don't we take um, the Timmy Trumpet object, right? Because that is, it's nice, it's well-documented, it's got an actual name associated. So Timmy Trumpet is an Australian DJ. He says, right, I want to sell my trumpet, right? It's my famous trumpet, I'm going to sell my famous trumpet, I'm going to do the thing. So, and the reason I'm picking that rather than gold is we did the Timmy Trumpet object recently, so it's a little more up to date. The gold bars that we did are, you know, we did those almost a year ago. We've learned a lot since then. Also, we're going to have a bunch of new gold stuff coming up soon. So I don't want to go through the gold bar thing and give people a bunch of slightly outmoded, accurate data. You know, we'll talk about the next gold bars when we've got like nice, fresh 400 ounce gold bars ready for DeFi. Um, So on, on the trumpet thing, right? Timmy comes along and says, right, I want to sell this trumpet. And the first thing that we need to figure out is, okay, what is it you're selling, right? How do we write a specification for a celebrity's trumpet so that somebody who just looks at that specification is making an accurate decision about the thing that they're buying? And that's exactly an Oracle problem, right? I need to be able to put the data about the physical status of the trumpet into a format where somebody can look at that, inspect it on chain, and then make a purchasing decision based on accurate, truthful data. Um, and that's the first step, right? Thing num- Question number one, what is this thing? Um, and that process is an Oracle-type process in that when people venture the information on what this thing is, if they make a mistake or if they lie, they're going to have to pay the buyer for the damages that they da- the buyer takes because the description they made the decision on was inaccurate. 
Does that make sense? It does. So you are literally putting up some kind of a bond or or disincentive for that information that you attest being wrong. Exactly, right? So the entity that's making the promises about what the thing is has to have what we uh, would call sort of in the legal world recoverable assets. What we mean when we say recoverable assets is in the event of a court case, is it possible that the person who's been taking the damage can be awarded money from your money somehow and that those assets can actually be gotten out by a court and then awarded to the person who's taken the damage? And what that means is bank accounts, real estate, anything really which is property that exists but isn't crypto. Right. If the stuff is crypto, then you can make a court order to have force somebody to hand it over. But if they don't want to hand over, it's not going to go. So you're you're looking here at non-crypto assets or crypto assets which are on chain and locked in escrow accounts. Either one will do. For real world trade, though, you don't want to rely, rely on escrow for everything because escrow ties up your working capital. If all of your money is tied up in escrow, you can't actually do anything with your money. So we try and make sparing use of escrow and we make heavy use of insurance and we make heavy use of recoverable assets and court orders. And how does that work? So if it, the ultimate customer is Timmy Trumpet because Timmy Trumpet says, I want to sell this thing and I think uh, boost it, that having this attestation from you and having the NFT and having this uh, this ultra secure property is going to boost the amount that I get from selling this trumpet and it will be a more tradable and verifiable item. So for that reason, he's paying your company uh, and that allows you to make a profit and also to put up to pay for this insurance and whatever service. I'm, I imagine you're not also a trumpet expert to be able to go in and verify that this was his trumpet or or how, how that works. But is the ultimate customer the seller who then we'll see a, a, an increase in value from having this ultra secure attestation. So it's every seller. <clears throat> the first seller gets a better price for it because of the attestation, but so does the second tower, seller, the third seller, the fourth seller. So Timmy says, right, you know, I'm going to sell this trumpet. I'm going to sell it to blockchain people because I got a lot of fans in the blockchain. I'm known in the blockchain space. Those folks have a good chunk of money behind them. They love collectible NFT things. Have an NFT of my trumpet. Right? So, once that trumpet is put into the vault and you've got documentation about the status of the trumpet and Timmy's statements and all the rest of that kind of stuff, once all of that stuff is nice and good and clear and crisp and we all understand it, at that point, you're getting the benefit of all of that legal work and all of that research when you buy the NFT. So the NFT buyer is not just getting, you know, a kind of, you know, I don't know, a plastic bag with a trumpet in it and a note on the side that says, thanks, Timmy. <laughs> What they're getting is a whole diligence package like you would get if you were going to auction this trumpet through a big auction house. It's the same kind of data with the same kind of quality. So at that point, you're getting a kind of top dollar product, which is the trumpet plus all the documentation and everything's tied together into a nice package. <clears throat> and critically, the next person that buys the NFT of you gets the same package and the person who buys it of them gets the same package. So everybody down the chain, <clears throat> as this thing is bought and sold over the next few years, everybody gets the same protective benefit of the initial work that was done to set the asset passport up, to set the NFT up, to set the legals up, so that when the trumpet is transferred, it comes with the full authentication suite that it had the first time it was sold. And that's preserved buyer after buyer after buyer after buyer, 
which means that every single buyer is protected when they become a seller. It's a really, really strong system. Got it. And so let's talk about, you know, sort of how things might go wrong. So obviously in, in like the blockchain NFT world, the classic thing that can go wrong is you click on a phishing link and your NFT is gone or you lose your keys and you, you know, no longer have access to that wallet or in the physical world that that trumpet is in someone's house and let's say a very clever burglar comes in and replaces that trumpet with a, a fake trumpet. And so like you could, you could imagine a way that the chain is broken in the digital, you know, blockchain side. And you could imagine a way that the chain of custody is broken on the, the real world side. So how, how, um, how do those two sync up? Like if there's some fault on one of the, or the other side, how does the other side know that, that there's a, that something has gone wrong? Absolutely. <clears throat> so the, the great unifying force in this whole story is money, right? So you buy the trumpet for a hundred grand from the person who bought the trumpet for a hundred grand. What you're buying is the right to take the trumpet, which is sitting locked in vault in Australia out of the vault if you want to. But to get that trumpet, you have to have the NFT locked because the NFT is the right to take the thing out of the vault. And the way that you get that right is you lock the NFT. NFT is locked. Trumpet is handed to you. You put the trumpet in a glass display case and that's where it stays. If you want to sell the trumpet, the trumpet is going to have to go back into the vault and it's going to need a new certificate that says this trumpet is exactly the same trumpet that was taken out of the vault on the following date. And that trumpet is the same trumpet that went into the vault when it went out of Timmy's hands. And the person who verifies that the trumpet that went into the vault is the same trumpet that came out of the vault and that it's in the same condition or documents like a new scratch or something, that person is taking full legal responsibility for that statement. And to get them to take that responsibility, you're paying them. Right? Here is 3% of the value of the asset for doing the condition report, which says that this asset is the same one that went in. Here is the high-resolution pictures of the trumpet on the way in. Here's the high-resolution pictures of the trumpet now. I, an expert in instruments, are matching those two pictures and saying, yep, same trumpet, same condition. In fact, it looks like somebody gave it a polish. Very nice, very good. Okay, off you go, right? Trumpet goes back into this the wall. This sounds like it, a perfect like oceans 15 george clooney comes back yeah <laughs> yeah yeah the trumpet and I tell you, the like, vault with the nft yes yeah these vaults are like seriously insured right and that thing about like oh yeah this sounds like ocean 11 like we have made that joke internally for years like oh you know like all the vaults in the world are going to use our nfts it's going to be like oceans 11 and that's exactly it right it's that kind of oceans 11 world only now that Ocean's Eleven world is being driven using NFTs to figure out when the deal is okay and when the deal is not okay. You know, serious business. Like this stuff is, it's super exciting, but wow, is the hardware intense. You know, 400 tons of steel door. You're just like, okay, now we're really doing stuff with crypto. Yeah, no, I'm excited for it. And then, and then what about the case if someone loses the keys to a wallet? That's just, it sits in the safe forever. Uh, no. Um, so if somebody loses the keys to a wallet or the NFT is stolen or something along those lines, the first thing they're going to do is notify the vault they have a problem, right? Hey, you know, uh, I just lost my NFT. Uh, I'm not sure what happened to it. Um, for God's sake, do not release the instrument until somebody tells you that it's okay to do that. 
Um, then the question is, well, who is authorized to say it's okay after somebody raises the alarm? And the way that we would typically do that is you, we would use an independent commercial arbitrator. So an independent commercial arbitrator is uh, an independent judge who, <clears throat> um, who is kind of constituted using that country's arbitration act. Uh, the arbitration acts are all kind of harmonized and linked to an international treaty. The international treaty has been around since 1958 and has 170 countries signed to it. So these independent commercial judges handle trillions of dollars of transactions a year. One of them is appointed to the case, and that judge has the power to do things like reissue the original NFT or um, return an NFT to its owner if it's been stolen. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So then there's like, as part of the cost of getting these certifications, you're also getting it wrapped in this legal authority so that if there is an incident, then you can always fall back on, I don't know, similar to like the probate process if someone dies, figuring out what happens to their assets, or if something is lost, figuring out who the rightful owner and, and returning it to them is. So I think, yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I could, that, that's like the one thing I kept turning over in my mind, like, how does this work? But yeah, uh, yeah I think. And, you know, this is the thing of like, we're, you're able to get at these problems from both sides, right? So on the legal side, in the kind of sort of paper world, you can use the affordances of the paper world to solve some classes of problems. On the digital world, you can use the digital world to solve other problems. So one of the nice things about the blockchain is that there's only one version of the truth on the blockchain. If somebody says, this is the NFT for this object, and here are the five documents that I'm submitting, then everybody sees the same five documents. Whereas if it's some kind of dodgy art dealer, the art dealer shows one person one set of documents and another person another set of documents because they show the legit documents to a real collector, but they show forged documents that make it look even cooler to somebody that seems like they don't really know what they're doing. Right. So by forcing it so that everybody's looking at exactly the same documents and every single document is attached to legal liability if the document turns out to have an error in it, what you're creating is a, an extremely trustworthy, it's almost like a kind of mini DAO. All of these people are carrying liability. All of these people are adding value to the object. All these people get paid when the object transfers and they're locked into a legal relationship with it. And as long as those people are good for their bills in the event that somebody sues them, you know, and I say sues, what I really mean is brings a dispute under the terms of the contract that they've signed when they put the object on chain. If somebody goes after those people underneath that arbitration agreement and says, this thing is fake, I told you it's fake, you were meant to pay me, you refused, now I'm going to sell your house in Portugal to pay the bill, right? The fact that we can sell the house in Portugal because that's the law and that's how the legal power works means that we get all the same kind of benefits that you get from crypto economic security on a bridge, but we do it without having to tie up the capital in escrow because the house that somebody is living in is a form of capital that is directly accessible to a judge. So we can literally use people's real world assets as the collateral in the system when they're doing these kind of bridge contracts. And you kind of see how that's game changing. I, I do. I don't know what happened to Wasabi. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I was talking and I didn't unmute myself. Oh, um, no, no. I, I, yeah, yeah. Do you do you think that these will be 
traded on OpenSea and the same rails that people are already using to uh, to trade, you know, monkey pictures or, or whatever, or like, does, does this kind of physical NFT need a separate marketplace? Um, <clears throat> so that is a good question. Um, I think it's going to be one of these things where it's not a kind of single integrated story. Um, OpenSea obviously has fantastic liquidity. It's got a huge user community. They're very experienced. They know what they're doing. So many people want to do this stuff on OpenSea. But uh, I mentioned before 400 ounce gold bars, right? Um, so 400 ounce gold bar, 12 and a half kilogram gold bar is the international standard for bank grade gold. It's what governments store. It's what banks exchange. It's like real professional gold. And I think there's a fantastic opportunity in crypto to take all the money which is currently wrapped up in stable coins and is losing money every day because of US inflation. You know, there's $160 billion of stable coins out there. Um, it's costing them 1% a month to keep that money in dollars because the dollar is evaporating. Inflation is eating the dollar. So 160 billion. 1.6 billion, 160, uh, it's costing them $1.6 billion a month to keep that money in dollars. And that is a large budget for switching over to gold because gold storage fees are half a percent a year. Dollar, dollar storage fees are now effectively 1% a month, 24 times more expensive to keep your money in dollars Could than gold. Couldn't it actually be worse though? Because like, aren't uh, aren't like Circle and um, Tether and all these guys like starting to say like, oh yeah, don't worry, like we have U.S. Treasuries, and then like the Treasuries are reducing in value. So like, couldn't couldn't they actually be like in some bad situations? Maybe like you know the thing everyone thought might happen might actually happen because they'd finally got rid of their uh, whatever they were holding and gotten to U.S. Treasuries. I don't know. Yeah, uh-huh, right. I mean, acute cause for concern. And it's not like these are particularly transparent institutions where we can go do an audit and figure out exactly what their risk profile is. You know, th this stuff is like fractal sketchy. So maybe it's all there, maybe it's not, but they're not going to tell you and you can't find out. And that, I mean, you know, is, is legitimately quite worrying. So you want to get out of that into 400 ounce good delivery bars, you know, we're talking to a bunch of very heavyweight players in the gold world about getting those bars turned into NFTs. Uh, and the idea is that that would be both backing for stablecoin projects, but also high net worth individuals could just buy one directly. They're about 600 grand a bar. Um, and I don't think those people are going to want to take their straight from the refiner 12.5 kilogram gold bars and put them on OpenSea for the most part, because the consequences of somebody faking it are so intense, right? So if somebody makes a fake OpenSea account for, say, Horaeus or PAMP or one of the big gold providers, and somebody stupidly sends these people $3 million to buy five NFTs for big gold bricks, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of fallout if that turns out not to be true. You know, there will be litigation. It's going to be a nightmare because gold people are really, really serious and they're not afraid of lawyers. You know, it's not like you thought you were buying a real board ape and you got a fake one. Like the people involved are very different. They're much more litigious. So at that point, I think you might see marketplaces which are really, really, really super diligent about who's buying, super diligent about who's selling. They'd probably integrate a lot of the KYC, AML, CTF, OFAC, PEP stuff. Uh, and, you know, in that sort of process, 
<clears throat> you know, they charge a larger margin because they provide brutal clarity about the fact that if you buy this NFT, the bar is really there. You know, the Materium Asset Passport is a component of that, but they also need buyer verification, seller verification. You know, there might be sort of additional independent audits. You could imagine all kinds of things that would get built there. And then that exchange is going to do like, you know, half a trillion dollars a year of transactions. I would almost prefer it to transact in a stable coin that's like one ounce of gold. Why, why, why use it to back a U.S. dollar stable coin when you could just well, have I, a I, one ounce? Yeah, I, I'm not suggesting you use it to back dollar denominated stable coins. No, no, you're going to go straight down to grams for sure, for sure. Got it. So let's. Um, Hal, I know you have to jump. If you have to jump, that you know, just uh, sign off and and we'll continue. But um, I, I want to talk about real estate because that kind of opens up a whole bunch of um, other complexities. So I've seen you have a piece of real estate on the uh, coast of England for sale. Yeah, I think it's on OpenSea. Finally, we've got real estate. Yeah. So, you know, give us like the Timmy Trumpet treatment for that and uh, talk us through like the process of getting real estate on chain uh, through these NFTs and 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 how it works from, from beginning to end. Okay. okay. So, um, Let's talk a wee bit about like how real estate is done now. So you decide you're going to buy something, you put in an offer, your lawyers and their lawyers have a discussion about how the contract paperwork is going to be done. There are then a bunch of kind of checks that you do, your lawyer does, which typically take a few months to come through because all of this stuff is paper-based and super inefficient. And at the end of that, you may also have to buy some additional insurance for things like title insurance then you get delivery of the property, you pick up the keys, the money is transferred, then you move into the place and it turns out that the roof leaks and there was some problem that was missed with mice or dry rot. Then you do a bunch of litigation, then somebody comes and fixes all that stuff, then your house is the kind of house that you thought you would get. Right? And that whole process from end to end is typically four to six months. It can go much faster, but it's often far slower. And the frequency of litigation is shocking and the number of deals that fall through is shocking. So the existing real estate transactional situation is a massive pain in the ass. Uh, and on top of that, there is also a kind of high-end real estate market where people take the real estate, put it inside of a company, and then they sell you the real estate, not by selling you the real estate, but by selling you the company. And that sort of model is called special purpose vehicles, SPVs. And it sort of started out as a way of doing tax evasion. Now they actually pay taxes on these things. But at the same time, um, you know, the SPVs have found their own utility because it's actually easier than doing stuff through national land registries a lot of the time. So that's our starting point. A any question about that before I talk about what we do to fix it? No, no, that's clear. Yeah. Uh, and and it, I mean, it's a, I don't know if you've ever bought or sold a house, but it's a pain in the ass, right? It's not a good process. Uh, additionally to that, every country has its own national land register, and those land registries have weird archaic rules. Uh, the one in the Netherlands recently did a massive digitization process. And at the bottom of that digitization process, like the hardcore problem they couldn't solve was ancient property titles, deeds, written in a language called Old Dutch on literally goat skins and they had to scan the goat skins into their databases and then archive uh, the goat skin original and if you needed to do any litigation on that stuff you had to go and get a translator to do a court certified translation of the old dutch deed 
you get a sense of the kind of labyrinthine horror of trying to take an 800-year-old legal document and use it in a modern court. I don't know. That sounds pretty straightforward. Just uh, you know, bring <laughs> your skins to, to court, make sure you got... Yeah. Your Honor, I'd like you to inspect this goat skin that I inherited along with my house. 800 years my ancestor was given this by the king. I mean, it's amazing, but it's also like, what? And real estate is like that all over the world. I mean, you go to Greece and you've got like, you know... Well, in the, uh, the the 15th century, my uncle defeated this other guy in a duel, but we never wrote down the transfer of the deeds because we didn't want to pay the taxes. And everybody knows that this is our property. And, you know, so it's, it's just endless labyrinthine Baroque bullshit. It's very hard to work with. Um, so to get the NFT to correctly reflect the value of the real estate, you need some intermediaries to take up the slack, right? You need somebody to say, I guarantee you that this real estate is in good condition according to the following checklist. And if anything is wrong, we'll fix it for you. And it has to be this kind of relatively universal blanket promise because if you don't make that kind of relatively universal blanket promise, it's almost impossible to manage the real estate transactional complexity because you can't go point by point and have every single thing documented in a smart contract. You know, if you think you're going to buy a three-bedroom house, a three-bedroom apartment in a New York brownstone house, there's probably a checklist of 15,000 things that could go wrong, and you're not going to be able to continually monitor all that stuff and put it onto a smart contract as a kind of continuously updated document. You're going to have to have some kind of um, bundling of all of that risk into, here's the 10-point checklist, everything is fine, trust us on this, it's okay, and if we are wrong, we will make it right. And we're going to charge you a fat fee for doing that. And as a result, we're basically buffering the gap between the physical and the digital with insurance. And paradigmatically, this is how Materium works. It's not that you can perfectly document everything about the real world and the oracles will give you 120% perfection. <clears throat> the oracles are there to get you most of the way and then insurance takes you the rest of the way. It's been, yeah, I mean, it's basically just a mortgage-backed security that's been rebuilt as a NFT, right? Um, no, not quite, not quite. So when you're buying the NFT for one of these properties, you're paying in cash for the whole value of the property. There is no mortgage, but the documentation of the property and why the property is valuable is actually very similar to the documentation that you'd hope you would get with a mortgage-backed security. So the, the underlying need to financially document the value of the asset is the same, but the implementation is very different because we're dealing with cash buyers at this point. That will change in future. What, one thing that occurs to me, I know, you know, so we bought a house several years ago and it was in very much a seller's market. So there's, you know, you could imagine like in a seller's market, we uh, did all these things, you know, we, we waived all these uh, contingencies. We said, uh, you know, we'll take responsibility for the inspection. We won't be able to pull out. And we had to be extremely nice to the seller so that they would pick us rather than the, you know, 10 other people that, that made offers. But you could imagine in a buyer's market uh, when it's everything is thrown into reverse and the seller is desperate to sell and um, the, you know, they're, they're willing to, to uh, you know, maybe bear the cost of, of doing the attestation and everything. So for, for real estate, how, how do you... Uh, you know who 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 pays, and is it does it change based on the sort of like market conditions or, or marketplace that you're in? So the seller is doing a ton of additional work in this model. What the seller gets out of doing the additional work 
is instantaneous transaction when the buyer shows up. So the buyer rocks up and says, right, I see the NFT, I see the asset passport. The seller says, I got KYCU and I got to figure out where your money came from. That's international law. You give the buyer some comfort that you are not, in fact, some awful hoodlum who made your money doing something illegal. And then the buyer says, fine, buy the NFT. You buy the NFT, you are now, uh, to all intents and purposes, the owner of the property, job done. Could be as little as two days from start to finish of that story. And if you were doing commercial real estates, you were something like a hedge fund and you were doing a lot of this, you could make a deal with a bunch of developers where you KYC'd, you did the AML, they understand you're legit, and then they just list their assets on a website and you buy anything you feel like, as do your other competitors and friends and colleagues. So the notion that you've got many professional sellers, many professional buyers, and then a sort of eBay for property, which is one-click payments with all of the money changing hands immediately and all the legals being transferred in the same click, all of the legal documentation work and the asset passport prep and all the rest of that is done while the home is being finished. And then as soon as it's finished, you can immediately sell it and boom, there's your liquidity for the transaction. Right. I, I, I wonder if you have any... Yeah, yeah. I wonder if you have any comment on, you know, in the in the last, I don't know, the last year or two, there have been several of these um, services. I think Zillow is one, Carvana, you know, several of these business models where the idea is that there's a sort of algorithm that will set a price for the house and then buy it and then they're flipping it and uh, the same for cars. These have kind of run into a lot of trouble in recently just because they have, you know, someone coming in to, to make the, you know, the, the algorithm is never going to have as much information as the seller who knows every nook and cranny of the property. And, um, you know, the incentives are kind of misaligned in that, in that case too. So like, do you think, like, are you trying, are you doing anything to avoid those problems or do you work with more diligent inspectors or how do you kind of, uh, like, have you taken steps to kind of, see where these other companies have gone wrong and, and try to alleviate that? So, I mean, these folks are acting like hedge funds, right? They want to sit in the middle of the action and they want to take on a bunch of risk for buying the stuff low and selling it high, right? Mm-hmm. Basically their business model. We're not a hedge fund. We're basically a custodian. So we make sure that the property is correctly defined. All the information is there. And we make sure that somebody is standing behind all of that information and that that person is a right and proper person to provide the information and that they have some you know, reasonable expectation of financial solvency so that if they are sued, the money will be there. As Materium matures, we're going to get out of even most of that business and most of that is going to go to their insurers. So it's like, hey, you've got a $10 million insurance bond that says you're able to do this work. You can do up to $10 million worth of transactions on the platform after that and go buy more insurance. So even that step where we are making a judgment call that these people are solvent is going to go away over time because we're just going to go to proof of insurance, right? We synchronize and coordinate, but we don't arrange and we don't finance. So that's the first difference. The first difference is we're not sitting in the middle of this thing like a hedge fund. Um, The second difference is subtle but really important, which is synchronization of the actions. So Atomic Swap is super critical. Um, are your listeners going to know what Atomic Swap is or should I describe Atomic Swap? Yeah, maybe give a quick thumbnail. All right. So Atomic Swap is that in a single blockchain transaction, the money goes in one way and the NFT comes out the other, right? So 
it's atomic in the sense that you can't break it down. It's a single action. Both things happen simultaneously. Smart contracts do this by default, and that's fantastic. So for a market like real estate, what you don't want is for the money was sent and then the contract hitches. Like, oh, yeah, we just sent you over the money, and oh, we just realized we didn't check something. Oh, could you hold on to that while we figure this out? And, you know, you get this whole kind of cycle of complexity where you know, there's just a mess. What you want is a cut and dried offer. Everything is here. All the warranties are in place. You know who everybody is. Take it or leave it. Somebody sends the money and they get ownership of the thing immediately. And it's that ability to just do a cut and dried deal for real estate that's almost impossible to do in the normal real estate world because the real estate world runs on litigation rather than insurance. It runs on litigation rather than warranty. And the advantage of moving to the warranty model, what you get to pay for all this warranty malarkey, the kind of carrot that goes with the legal stick, is that you get instantaneous transaction. And instantaneous transaction equals capital efficiency, and capital efficiency is the soul of success in real estate. So this is really what's going to enable kind of a one-click shop, buy house. If you're, say you're moving to a new city, if there was a Redfin or a Zillow that you could buy and actually just add to cart, buy this house, it's removing the risk of the inspection or the title or the kind of myriad things that could go wrong in a transaction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, it, it's just, it's all rooted in this concept that you get as much data as you can, and then you cover any gaps with insurance, right? That as a concept is, it's the fundamental thing that you need to buffer the distinction between the kind of digital perfection of data representations and the real world where bumps and scratches and cracked window panes. It's all about insurance in there. And the the second category of real estate, this is my last question on this. Um, you, you know, you talked about the, uh, I guess in the US they're called REITs or, or I forget the name you used, but these companies that are essentially real estate operating companies. So how, how um, is this, is this on your roadmap uh, in the future to move to a system where say, for example, I could buy a portfolio of income producing storage sites or pieces of real estate um, that are on the blockchain and know exactly what what is uh, what is in these properties there's not it's not so much a black box um, where you can see you know I'm getting cash flow from ABC rental properties is this kind of where things are going yeah I mean you know on all of this stuff um, you know, digital trading of things, digital buying, digital selling has gone asset class by asset class by asset class for the past 30 years, you know, starts out with, you know, licensing music back at the beginning of time, then you get Amazon, you can buy and sell physical things, eBay now it's secondhand things, you know, used cars, then new cars, asset after asset after asset after asset, the buying and the selling moves on uh, into the digital Credit cards as a payment instrument aren't strong enough to do real estate. That's the fundamental reason that real estate hasn't gone on line, is credit cards are not a strong enough payment instrument. And if you're trying to do a bank wire and then coordinate everything with a bank wire, the whole thing is a very, very messy, discoordinated process that often goes wrong because the banks are flaky. Um, you know, I don't know whether you ever had a bank wire gone wrong and had to go chase it, but it's a nightmare. So what you, once you're in this paradigm of like, right, 
you know, now we've got the blockchain, we've got non-repudiatable payments, we've got transparent documentation, we've got DeFi. It's a case of trying to assemble a kind of coalition or a consortium that is strong enough and heavy enough to make a better offer to the buyers and sellers of real estate than the crappy old systems are using now. And when that happens, what you will get is something like Amazon did for used books, or sorry, what Amazon did for books, what eBay did for used books. You'll just get a moment where the entire business goes online and nobody would ever think of buying a real real estate other than using the blockchain. Like, why would you do that? It's like, you know, it's as archaic as like bicycling into town to buy a pack of you know, cigarettes rather than having them delivered to your house by Amazon, you know? There's just this whole sort of process of, um, you know, modernization sort of doesn't go backwards. Once people have decided they're buying and selling houses online and that means on chain, it will normalize over the course of 10 or 15 years. And then it'll be like two or $3 trillion a year of transactions for real estate will go over the blockchain. And it will never go back. It will just be like, there you go. That's our new digital future. And you know, why was why did anybody ever do it any other way? All right. I'd like uh, to move us, if I can, to the final section, um, which is just kind of your your big picture views, uh, humanity, where things are going. Um, I you know you write a lot a lot about this on Twitter, and I enjoy uh, following your your takes there. Um, but first, I, I need to ask you, tell us about the hexayurt. <laughs> right on. So uh, I was, you know, not always <laughs> doing tech stuff, you know. I did tech stuff in the 90s. I was a graphics engineer. I worked on flight simulators for the Air Force, medical imaging systems. Uh, and I was, a, I was a really good graphics engineer. I was great at that stuff. Um, um, and then in the late 90s, I got into databases because I wanted to understand sort of how we would handle terabyte terrain databases for things like VR. Like, okay, I've got another graphics stuff inside out. Let's go figure out terrain databases. Uh, and then 9-11 happened and my life took a very unexpected direction. I found myself in energy policy, working at a place called the Rocky Mountain Institute. I was a contractor up there. So while I was at Rocky Mountain Institute, I got exposed to a problem, which is that people wanted to be able to flat pack refugee housing, right? And I, you know, because I had been kind of a hippie in the 90s, had a sort of broad exposure to things like geodesic domes. I put a bunch of work into understanding Buckminster Fuller's geometry, uh, lots and lots and lots of kind of complex math. You know, I understood that stuff. So when they said, hey, could you make a flat pack refugee shelter? Uh, I sort of took a look at that problem and was like, yeah, sure, I could totally do that. Um, and I was right. Took me about 15 minutes to solve because I had prepared my mind very thoroughly by understanding it and everything was, you know, sort of ready for the jump. And then I made the jump because I was in the right context and I had the right experience and I then invented the single hexier. So a hexier is a little pod house. And what makes the hexier a uniquely useful little pod house is you don't need to do any cutting of plywood or complicated joinery or anything like that to manufacture it. Uh, you could literally put it together with a knife, tape, and a pair of scissors. And people do this at scale. Like Burning Man, they build, I don't know how many hexers at Burning Man. Could be five or 10,000. Hard to say. Uh, the aerial pictures certainly give you a sense of like how many are being built there, but counting them is a pain in the butt. Um, really a lot of people are in hexyarts. There's also a second generation thing called a shift pod. And what a hexyart looks like is six sheets of four by eight material in a shallow hexagon. 
forming a wall, six more sheets cut in half on the diagonal assembled into a shallow cone roof, and then you lift the roof onto the wall and there's your house. And they are stupidly strong. They're just staggeringly strong because they're basically like a little geodesic dome and, you know, something like plywood, like, you know, imagine how much force it takes to tear a sheet of plywood. It's impossible, particularly when you arrange it in a form where everything is triangulated and is just ultra well secured. And as I say, you can do them in plywood, honeycomb polypropylene. There's a fantastic construction panel called Hunter XCI 286, which they're really good in. Uh, if you're being ghetto about it, you can use a thing called Armax, but it doesn't tend to last as long. Uh, and they're cheap, they're strong, they're insulated, they're light, and they're fantastic in very hot climates. And I open sourced the design because I didn't think that commercialization was the best way of spreading the technology. And there are half a dozen companies that manufacture them from Burning Man and ShiftPod who exports globally. Um, their version is a kind of fabric-based version that folds up in the back of a car, but it's a very similar design principle. So the Hexier was intended as part of a long-term strategy which I figured out in 2002, which is that I was going to spend the next 30 years figuring out how to rehouse hundreds of millions of climate refugees. And I figured it was going to take 15 years to develop the technology and another 15 years to scale the capacity to do large-scale deployment. I would say that I'm currently about five years behind schedule on that. So I worked on the shelters, I worked on critical infrastructure mapping, and all my blockchain work fits into that framework. This is the long-term ambition behind everything that I'm doing. So I'm, I'm on hexayear.com, which I imagine is, is either your site or someone affiliated with you. And if you want to get more into it, this is a, this is a great uh, afternoon rabbit hole to go down. Um, but I want to connect this to climate, uh, the climate uh, crisis, uh, ESG. We recently had on the podcast a, a person, a, a chicken named uh, Doomberg. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a, a new kind of personality on the uh, uh, financial Twitter space and, and runs a Substack. And he has been pushing a narrative um, that's very critical of the ESG movement that kind of says, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if I were to kind of thumbnail it saying, okay, um, ESG is is fine, decarbonization is fine, but the answer is really nuclear. And um, it, 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 you know, people who think that uh, humanity is going to get off uh, fossil fuels, carbon, um, the only way to do that is through massive depopulation. We've kind of uh, carbonized ourselves into a corner where uh, populations would collapse if if carbon were restricted. And um, if, you know, the solution is to go nuclear, but in the meantime, if you're cutting off investment in fossil fuels, that's essentially cutting off humanity, um, you know, absent any other carbon light form of energy. So do you, how do you respond to that kind of thesis? Do you, is it rubbish or uh, how, uh, how do you respond to that? I wish it was rubbish. I wish it was nonsense. Uh, unfortunately, it's not. So the situation that we're in right now is we are very heavily screwed, right? And the simplest way of understanding how screwed we are is to think of this in terms of fertilizer, right? The reason that we can support an 8 billion person population is because we've got, you know, diesel-fueled industrial agriculture and we prepare enormous amounts of fertilizer, largely from fossil fuel energy, and we put that on the fields and the food crumbs up and then we harvest it with a big machine and that's why food is cheap and cheap food equals abundant people 
except for anomalies like Japan. So now that we've got a lot of people on that basis, you sort of think, well, what happens if we stop using the fertilizer and the diesel? And then the question is, well, how do we make the food come out of the ground? Hmm, that sounds hard. Weirdly enough, it is, right? So if you just take it to that ultra simplistic level, we are eating the products of fossil fuels all the time. And if you turn them off, we might not have as much food. Now, how serious that problem is depends on who you ask, right? You know, hmm, how much fossil fuel was going in? How efficiently could we do farming without it? What if we did the Cuba model where Cuba went back to literally horse-drawn plows after the uh, Soviet Union collapsed? Somehow they made it through. There's a whole bunch of high-complexity speculation about what you could or couldn't do and how all that would work. Parallel to that, there is also the domestic energy problem, which is like, if you have a five-bedroom house in Houston, Texas, the interior of your house will be 130 degrees through most of the summer unless you're in air conditioning, and air conditioning requires vast amounts of energy. If you live in a city like Chicago or New York and you don't have massive access to energy, you're going to literally freeze to death. So everything that we do in the world is dependent on having massive amounts of cheap fossil energy, However, the cheap fossil energy is causing the climate to change and the cause of the climate change. uh, Even if we stop using fossil energy now, we're still going to have a bunch of climate change. The climate change moves around rainfall patterns and when you move around rainfall, a whole bunch of people starve or drown. It's it's an unbelievably horrific clusterfuck and the human race and its leadership in general have got like a D minus grade at dealing with any of this stuff. And everything that I've told you right now was well understood 30 years ago. I got turned on to it in 1995 by a guy called Albert Bates, uh, who lived in a place called The Farm in Tennessee and was uh, a World Watch Institute was his thing. And, you know, like they were basically right about everything. Here we are. Right? Uh, I yep, didn't. There's, there's also a good book, uh, Vaclav Smil, How the World Really Works, if you want to, you know, yes, quick intro no, on the. Yeah, that's a great one. Smil to finish is a big deal. Absolutely. Smil is a big deal. Excellent reference. Um, so then you say, okay, what do we do about this, right? You know, got any ideas? <laughs> you know, like, what's your, what's, your, what's your preferred plan? I'll tell you mine, but give me some sense of where you're at. Yeah, I mean, my preferred plan is massive uh, adoption of nuclear energy. And um, I think Doomberg, I mean, the, the other thing that I, I've enjoyed about Doomberg, you know, he has uh, massive adoption of nuclear energy and... Um, you get around the problem of electric cars, you know, like, you know, everyone can't drive a Tesla because we would have mm-hmm. to, you know, dig up most of the earth's crust to do get lithium and these minerals. So, you know, uh, try to incentivize um, these kind of hybrid model cars where there's mm-hmm. uh, where there's a, a small gas engine, but but most of the time for shorter trips, it's working on batteries that would kind of help bridge the gap. But uh, that's that's where I am. Hmm. So the other sort of possibility here is um, that we can pull huge amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere or otherwise stabilize the planet with geoengineering. Oh, Project pumping sulfur Earth. into the uh, atmosphere. Pumping sulfur into the atmosphere to change the way that clouds work or Project Vesta where you just grind up entire mountains and dump them into the sea to pull the CO2 out of the sea. Because the sea is the big CO2 sink, right? So mm-hmm. 
if you grind up a bunch of rock and you dump it into the sea, it pulls the acidity from the carbon dioxide out of the sea. That makes more room for the buffering capacity of the sea to absorb more carbon dioxide, and then that pulls carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Sounds pretty reasonable. They're doing some trials. Might work fine. Um, so all of these things, I, let's put that sort of stuff in a bucket, geoengineering. So geoengineering means you can continue to run fossil fuels because you make the carbon in one place and you suck it out in another, or you reflect away the sun. All of those things, lots of people are working them. It's all work in progress. Large-scale nuclearization, the French have done it. The French have followed more or less exactly the nuclear power everywhere strategy. Obviously, electrifying everything in France has taken a while, but in theory, they ought to be able to do it. You know, they're down to about twice as much carbon as they should be emitting for sustainability, but Americans are about eight times as much. Pretty good progress in France. Um, all of this stuff, um, my take on this in you know, 2002, and it hasn't changed, is we're not going to do any of this stuff in time. We're going to break the climate horribly. Hundreds of millions of people will be displaced and probably tens of millions of people will die. And after that's gone on for a while, maybe we will get our shit together. And I didn't really have a clear map of like, maybe it'll be nuclear, maybe it'll be this, maybe it'll that, maybe it'll be whatever. My take on it was whatever the heck it is, it will be too little too late and we're going to get the hell beaten out of us first. And so to be honest, I don't follow most of the attempts to mitigate the climate problem all that closely because even if we have technology that works, we're probably going to spend the necessary critical window before investing squabbling and arguing and lobbying. So I'm hugely pessimistic about our ability to do any of this in time to stop the climate catastrophe occurring. And I think that, you know, the decision that I made to sink my life into managing the consequences of climate change rather than trying to prevent climate change, I think that has been absolutely spot on because I could never have gotten anything substantial done about preventing climate change, but I've actually made reasonable good progress in terms of cleaning up the worst of the messes as a result of it. Um, you know, put $10 billion behind me and I could actually put a fully efficient system in place for rehousing hundreds of billions of people and we're going to need it. Um, hmm. So, you know, that is sort of off the charts, ultra black doomer pessimism. And that's where I was in 2002 and I'm still there. Which sucks, right? It's bad, but you know this is where we are. And maybe I'll be wrong. If I'm wrong, then I'm just going to go out and take those technologies to the 100 million people that are in refugee camps and we'll sort that problem out and that will still have been a very worthwhile life. So even if it turns out that I'm wrong about climate change and we sort it out, I'm not wasting my time building these technologies. We still need them for the existing refugees. How, do you, uh, how would you rate something like the climate crisis in comparison to the rising threat of nuclear war how do you uh how do you compare those two are there any other existential risks i know people talk a lot about ai coming down oh, the road God. to humanity how, how how if you had to make kind of like a top a top list uh per prioritization of like the existential oh. risks how would are you attack sure that you, are you sure you want to ask me that question you know i used to do like nuclear war uh sort of um contingency management stuff right like ultra worst case pandemic planning where like 2 billion people die of the plague. Like I, I used to do this stuff in the military think tank context. <laughs> like, look, I've actually answered I, these questions, but your listeners may be deeply traumatized by the answers. Look, I mean, I'm, I'm someone who thinks about this stuff a lot and I'm shocked that we aren't talking about it more and that 
that the threat of nuclear war is just another headline that you can click mm. on Twitter and move on to the next thing. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we're doing this. So if you have so time, we, if you have time, I'd like to talk about this. If you got to go, we, we can wrap it up. So let, let's, let's talk about this. Let, let's tie up the blockchain thing for a second and then we can come on to this stuff. So the reason I'm doing the blockchain stuff is this. Firstly, it's a way to make money and I'm wanting to spend a lot of money hiring engineering teams and doing prototyping of pretty large scale humanitarian resettlement technologies. Um, to the point where I'd like to do a city for maybe half a million people, privately financed, so that I could verify that the technologies work with a safe test population. Um, secondarily, tracking all the physical assets that the human race has so we can use algorithmic deployment and efficient markets could half our environmental footprint globally very, very quickly. It would also solve a huge number of the problems of world poverty where people need a 10 millimeter wrench and they can't get one and then they can't fix their scooter and then they can't get to work and they lose their job and it's a disaster, right? Access to tools, access to technology, the ability to buy things when you need them and then sell them again, it all stretches the dollar and it stretches our natural resources. So all of this blockchain stuff that I'm doing you know, algorithmic optimization using things like NeoSwap's algorithm for where goods are being traded so you don't need liquidity. All of that stuff is part of a general approach of try and optimize the resource use of the global economy as far as possible using digital technology because we're fantastic at developing new digital stuff and we're very poor at managing our material environment. You know, that's the kind of first chunk. We optimized manufacturing with quality control. We optimized investment with quantitative finance all of this stuff is based in big statistics so is quality control we optimized the selling algorithms with uh, targeted advertising that's also statistical process control we apply statistical process control to consumption patterns and waste management we correctly incentivize markets to produce durable goods with minimal footprint everything lasts forever everything can be repaired nothing is ever thrown away and when something has been used the heck out of it in the developing world a developed world it goes to the developing world because you know some kid in a village is very happy with your old digital camera thank you very much even if it's only eight megapixel right so that's the kind of trajectory of that work it's not disconnected from the crisis it's intended to help reduce some of the damage of the crisis but i don't believe that we are going to reduce the damage very much we're going to slam into it <clears throat> that ties off the blockchain thing yeah and there's uh, also i in your book, the future of stuff, you talk a lot about the the um, the the idea of all these externalities embedded in all the consumer stuff that everyone buys, and having you know having that data baked into what you buy on Amazon, so you can avoid slave labor or avoid these externalities. Is that that's kind of like when you go exponential on this, and you can do this for for close to no, no cost, right? Then there's this whole like trailing end of information behind all of our stuff that helps avoid these mm -hmm. problems. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, you put all those pieces together, right? It, it, it's not that unlikely that we could turn this around, right? We get better solar, we get better nuclear, we get better wind, we better get, our, get, yeah, get better grid management. We figure out how to massively insulate houses by, you know, I don't know, pouring aerogel in through the cavity walls or roofs or whatever it is, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that we could pull together and we could actually get ourselves out of this. It's not for sure doom. 
it's just very, very, very messy. And, you know, what happens next? Bit of an open question. Um, so sh- shall we get into the asterisk stuff? Let's do it. All right. So the asterisk landscape. The top level way of thinking about this, uh, I got into it from the concept of um, rising small group lethality. So there are a bunch of different ways of thinking about it, but you know, the rising small group lethality basically says, right, what can a dozen people do to kill as many people as humanly possible? And you know, how hard is it for them to do that? And right now with existing technology, you know, pick a number, it's that number. <clears throat> in 25 years, it could be a hundred times that number. In 50 years, it could be five thousand times that number. You know, in 50 years, it's like, well, what are they gonna do? Well, they could pre-pro reprogram one of the asteroid mining stations to slam the asteroid into the earth rather than throwing it into a solar furnace. Whoa, that'd be really bad. Why, that would wipe out half a continent. Yeah, but, you know, 50 years after that, it's going to be like AI nanobots and they're just going to destroy every single cell on earth, cell by cell by cell by cell and turn into more nanobots. Wow, that's even worse. So as we get more and more and more powerful technology, the number of ways that a small number of lunatics can kill a shit ton of people multiply and multiply and multiply most of the worst approaches are replicator engineering where you genetically engineer viruses or bacteria or gray goo nanotech type stuff green goo blah 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 synthetic biology is just a cabinet of horrors then you have population problems degradation of natural systems the human tendency to eat everything around us then you have territoriality and these things are the kind of stuff that Schmattenberger thinks of being the kind of meta-drivery thingies, blah, blah, blah. Um, because he doesn't have an effective model of human nature, he has very hard time getting traction on that stuff. I have an effective model of human nature. My model is very simple. Human males are either expanding their territory or murdering each other for the existing territory. And the only way that you can stop us murdering each other for the existing territory is to open up the high frontier and start loading men into space. Right? Um, I used to say to people what went wrong in the 20th century is we put the plutonium in the wrong end of the rockets. Simple, right? Space exploration using atomic rockets, yes. Nuclear warheads, no. (laughs) Right. Um, So in terms of ranking those problems, um, by far, number one is disease, both natural and synthetic. Number one, the big problem designer plagues and the the evidence that that is a big problem is a thousand years of ultra well documented history of huge plagues coming through and killing bloody well everybody over and over and over again like the black death killed like a third of the population of europe three times in 200 years yep um nuclear weirdly i'm not that worried about nuclear war right i mean you know at this point in the evolution, I think if you saw the Americans and the Russians go all out, you know, they'd probably blow up 20 or 30 cities each. You might have a few more bombs flowing around. You probably have less than a thousand detonations overall and much more likely to be less than a hundred. Could be 20 or 30 and it would still be seen as being a total war. You'd get some nuclear winter. It would suck. But, you know, the long-term damage caused by plagues is potentially so much larger than the long-term damage caused by just blowing up some cities. Just Um, because of the fact that you would get a plague that would just wipe out everyone that would be so effective. 
Well, I mean, you could lose twenty five percent of the human race in a year to a plague within historical norms quite easily. You know, twenty five percent population mortality from a plague going through two billion people die really fast. And, you know, it's not that those two billion people would just wake up dead one morning. The whole of society is going to shatter to the core in the process of trying not to be one of those two billion. You know, it's it's bad and it's really predictable. But, you know, these kind of mega plagues have gone through. You, you know, like the reason that North America was largely empty and waiting to be farmed by the arriving uh, colonists was because a plague had gone through from the initial contact with whites and had killed like 90% of the Native Americans before the mm-hmm. white folks began to arrive in North mm-hmm. America. Yep. That could happen tomorrow morning. Right? You know, somebody, you know, some 12 year old licks their ferret and boom, everyone dies. Um, and you've seen with the <laughs> you've seen with the response to COVID, like how incredibly stupid our public health infrastructure is. Oh my fucking god. Um so all of those things together, yeah, disease is my number one pick for a problem. Nuclear war, not as fussy. Uh, AI, uh, I wrote a book about AI alignment. Um, it's kind of a crappy book, but it's quite an entertaining read. Uh, Hexier.com slash novel. It's called Mother of Hydrogen. It discusses the AI alignment problem from a kind of weird angle. Uh, I have... Not that much sense of AI as being a risk. I cannot justify why I don't feel it's a risk, but emotionally I have no strong sense of like, oh, I should do something about that. It's one of the few X risks that I have no emotional impulse to work on, even though I can intellectually demonstrate why it's dangerous. So I have a weird blind spot about AI. I've never been able to figure out why. Uh, but I don't seem to be inclined to work on it, although maybe I'll get around to it. Um, what else do we have? You know, asteroids, cosmic rays, all the rest of that kind of stuff. Be nice if we did deep sky scanning. We don't. We're lazy bastards. Probably the reason that we don't do a lot of deep sky scanning stuff and don't build the instruments is because lots of people have hidden nuclear weapons in space and they don't want that stuff found on sky scans. Um, I'm trying to think what else there is off the top of my head. Wait, um, wait, wait, wait! You just kind of said that offhand. Can you uh, can you go deeper on that? Oh, <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> so. The reason that we make a, like, there is no law against riding a unicorn um, through the streets of London, right? Mm-hmm. The reason there's no law is because unicorns don't exist. Right. So the reason that we have a, a, you know, an anti-space-based nuclear weapons treaty is because it's possible to put nuclear weapons in space and everybody would like it if people didn't do that, right? Which means that people have probably done it. Well, I mean, of course, right? What they will do is they'll be breaking the treaty very, very quietly because space is just an excellent place to hide a nuclear weapon. You know, paint it black, stick it in some weird orbit, make sure it doesn't emit any anything, hide it in some clever, clever way, and then, you know, what is your opponent going to do to find that and destroy it? They're never going to be able to find it. Even if they can't find it, they probably can't hit it, and it can be dropped anywhere on Earth anytime you set the thing off. You know, and if you're feeling particularly malicious, you know, imagine the thing just looks for nuclear flashes on the North American continent, and if it sees them, it automatically launches. You could dead man switch that stuff. Um, so you just have to assume that those weapons are there because why wouldn't they be? I also do children. I also do children's parties. <laughs> <laughs>
I used to carry a business card that said, you know, nuclear bombs, pandemic flu. Oh, we haven't talked about um we haven't talked about at all about revolutions, failed states, civil wars. I also did a ton of work on that stuff. So I had a list of all of these horrible contingencies, then at the bottom of it said I also do children's parties. And then remember there was this thing with the supermodels where some supermodel said I don't get out of bed for less than ten grand. Mm. So my next business card just said I don't get out of bed for less than one percent mortality. <laughs> That was my business card. Uh, yeah, those were, those were great years, but it was very, very horrible work, and it sent me quite, quite mad. All right, so putting it all together, we have the existential risks. We have the you know reducing um, reducing consumption by putting things uh, on chain and in, in digital format. So, how do you kind of reconcile these? What's what's the uh, synthesis of of these two pieces? Okay, so we've got two populations in the world. We have city people that live in ultra-high technology settings, and we have rural people that are mostly growing their own food by hand. Right? We also have some urban poor, and we have some rural rich, but those are small populations compared to the enormous hardcore urban rich rural poor. Um, rural rich is negligible. Urban poor is probably a billion people, but they're, they're getting rich quite rapidly. So if we think of trying to take these phenomenally ferociously unmaintainable uh, resource-hungry cities and make them sustainable, that's an incredibly hard problem, right? It's very, very difficult. But if we think of taking the rural poor and adding enough technology to their lives that they go from being poor and desperate to being quite happy, that's pretty imaginable. You know, if you think of some village in the corner of Bangladesh with solar panels, Starlink for fast internet, a couple of video projectors for movies on the weekends, energy-efficient cook stoves, water filters so the water they drink is clean. You probably have a plastic tub with about 2000 bucks worth of equipment in it, and one of those per village, and then another 300 bucks worth of equipment per household. And at the end of that, they have services of almost first-world quality that are completely affordable on the budgets they have now. And all of that can be done inside of market capitalism or socialism or communism or anarchism. It's just about managing and upgrading the critical infrastructure. And you could just, on any given day, you ask some smart person, what's the shopping list? And they'll tell you. Lots of people doing sustainable development research, appropriate technology, charity aid workers, they've got opinions. So the first thing we can do to take load off the global problem is upgrade the infrastructure in the villages to raise quality of life that reduces migrations to the cities. It also reduces pressure on the land because they're no longer hitting their farmland so hard, trying to squeeze out resources because you improve agriculture as you go through that process. There's an outfit called One Acre Fund that operates in Africa. They have demonstrated doubled agricultural productivity with education programs, right? Farm training, very, very, very simple process. Well, very easy to describe process. A lot of work went into getting it right. But literally 50%, 75%, 100% more food for existing farms just by changing their farming techniques in relatively straightforward ways. Can you imagine how different the world would look if we just got that stuff right? Yeah, it's like these software improvements, right? They're they're, uh, massively have an impact. Like I'm thinking about the Hexiert site, right? Like that's just like a simple Mm -hmm. HTML website and... Um, it's like uh, DNA or software uh, or the power of information to, uh, yeah, the, the exponential power you get from, from information. Information and applying information. Have you seen Apropedia? No. 
It's like Wikipedia, but it's like 300,000 pages about how to successfully operate a village. Hmm. Right? Medical information, well digging information, farming information, apropedia.org. It's where all the heavy technical information for the hex here is. So think of that as ch- chunk one. Chunk one, fix the villages. Chunk two, fix space travel, because I am firmly of the belief that the men of this planet are morons and they're either going to be murdering each other or they're going to be um, exploring far off worlds, right? Well, you have to get them podcasting. That's the trick. Well, podcasting is the beginning of the process, but then you have the war for podcasting's dominance and Joe Rogan wins, right? Okay. Um, So what's the point? So the point is we got to build lots and lots and lots of spaceships. And I think that that will cause the men of Earth to tend towards more cooperation to get onto the ships and get out and get exploring and colonizing and settling and expanding and a less tendency to view the world as a fight to the death with our neighbors. I think human territoriality is directly related to the fact that we've closed the frontier. There is no more place you can just expand and live your life. And we need to reopen the sky because men are assholes. And I think that is the perfect synthesis of tech bro culture and feminism. Yes, spaceships, but because men are dicks. Okay, fine. We can uh, agree on this. I love it. There's your, so that's your second principle. And by the way, I think the only sensible way of doing that is really nuclear engines. I wish somebody would give Elon Musk a license to build nuclear engines. I bet he'd be great. And almost certainly wouldn't build nuclear weapons with the spare uranium. Yeah. So that's your second agenda item, right? Third agenda item is we've got to fix the cities. The only way to fix the cities is to make the cities hyper-efficient, right? You have to get out of the culture where the cities waste huge amounts of energy, huge amounts of water, and huge amounts of material goods, huge amounts of food. The cities have to be re-engineered to be super-efficient. And that is not incredibly dramatic changes. Think of um, things like Deliveroo, right? You know, it's a really efficient way of getting food. Really good cooks working in well-designed commercial kitchens with very, very short delivery windows that get food to you when you need it. 20 years of work on making that system absolutely perfect could result in a culture that has practically no food waste, right? Um, Same thing with Amazon. If Amazon would take things away as easily as it brings them, you don't need storage. You just take anything that you're no longer using, you give it back to Amazon, and they sell it to somebody else again. Hell, they just do the logistics, and you get the money when you sell it to someone else. Even better. Minimize their cut. So closing the loops, redesigning the logistics, figuring out how to insulate the buildings, actually insulate the buildings, fixing public transport, making the cars ultra lightweight, getting people onto electric bicycles, uh, bus rapid transit, all the rest of those kind of simple engineering improvements to the cities, all of that stuff can be done. And if you compare the difference between cities like Amsterdam and cities like London, it shows you how effectively you can do that kind of urban re-engineering work if you give a shit. The Dutch are really good at it, and they've been at it for five decades. They've taken it seriously, and the results are excellent. Um, So that is the third big change. Um, And then the fourth big change is we sort of have to get rid of the vast majority of our inaccurate and medieval beliefs about the world. You know, we know that human beings evolved. That's really important we can safely assume that if there is a god, it hasn't come and communicated with human beings in any kind of really ostentatious way in about 2,000 years. Maybe it's gone enough to do something else. I don't know. 
maybe we should chill out a bit about religion in the same way that we chill out about music. You know, like the cultural change stuff, we can't ignore it. It's not necessarily the solution to all of our problems, but it certainly aggravates all of our problems. Geostrategic tension about resources is aggravated by religious insanity. You know, abortion politics, aggravated by religious insanity. Trans issues, aggravated by religious insanity. Similarly, not having proper education systems where we teach children about evolution and about the nature of space-time early makes them super vulnerable to people filling their ears with nonsense. So I think that we need to start thinking about what it would take to really overhaul culture in a systemic way to exterminate superstition, not in a sort of Soviet ban religion sense, but in a sense of an incremental program to try and get the basic facts of human existence into most people's heads as truth rather than as something they heard down at the pub. And I think that as a four-point program, you could get most of the shit that we need to get fixed on this planet fixed by doing those four things, each one of which breaks into 10,000 smaller tasks. Uh, And that is why I should be elected as chief of the world immediately. There's my manifesto. All right. Well, I have a bunch of uh, I have a bunch of uh, questions that this has spurred, but I know you you've been super generous and we've been going for a, a while, so we can wrap up here. I have one one last question for yeah. you, and this is just you know you're someone who lives in the future. You spend a lot of time. Things that uh, will happen in the future are you know that seem like complete edge cases are just very obvious and kind of like front of mind for you. So for someone who, who d- does that. 2009, I ran a website called Fluco that was talking about how we needed to get everybody to wear masks because it was the only way of managing the risk. Of yeah. So you have been, you know, you were like day one on Ethereum. You, you are early in so many of these big, big trends and, and just have this ability to, to see around corners that I think is, uh, I really admire. So what, for someone who does not have your brain, what are some, uh, give us like your top you know, tips, do you have any books, mental models, things like how, how can people who aren't in this, this frame of mind, see, see around the corners? Okay. So the core skill in seeing around the corners is just looking very, very closely at how your own life works. Right. Um, and by mean very closely, uh, what I mean is like, you know, you ever see in sort of like game of Thrones or something where somebody wants to spy on somebody else you know, they have like, somebody will go in a servant's uniform and they can just wander anywhere they like and you can't see them because they're dressed as a servant. Mm -hmm. You know that kind of trope? So Mm -hmm. most of the really complicated and hard stuff in the world is right in front of us, but we don't see it because it's in the world that is run by what we think of as being the servant class, right? The real structure of the world is the world of boiler suits and muddy wellies and work gloves. You know, why am I not cold? Well, I'm not cold because a bunch of builders made this house and there's a huge river of natural gas coming into it and electricity coming into it that keeps it warm. And if I actually say, so where does the natural gas come from? I get the whole geostrategic natural gas problem just by asking, why am I not cold? Wow. So the gas, it comes from these storage tanks and we got rid of 90% of our gas storage in this country. And the pipelines that supply the gas into Europe go through Russia. Wow. Oh, and it's also causing climate change. Okay. Rats. That's really bad. So I can just pull on the thread of why am I not cold? And I can get the whole story behind there because every molecule of gas that, you know, gets burned in my boiler went through this entire story 
And if I care enough to ask the question, I can see all of it, right? How is my computer made, right? My iPhone, right? The thing lives in my hand. So a bunch of folks in Cupertino write a bunch of software and do design. Then there's a bunch of manufacturing in China. Then there's a bunch of weird materials like coltan, and the coltan comes from people mining in Africa. Hmm. I used to say to people, economic collapse, right? Collapse means living in the conditions of the people who grow your coffee. Wow. Oh, shit. Right? And most of what we think of as collapse are these terrible conditions. It's just when you move from being a consumer of labor to a producer of labor. You know, you go from being the person that does the website for the coffee company to being the person that actually picks the coffee, and suddenly you've become a, a them rather than an us. And as the global middle class, we have a horrible habit of totally ignoring the global working class and, God forbid, the global slave class. Um, and as a result, the world seems very complicated and mysterious to us. But if you just ask what labor was required for my lifestyle to look like this, and then you go and do a little bit of basic research about that labor, very, very, very quickly you understand what's happening. Where do the raw materials come from? Who processes them? How come I'm able to afford these things and other people can't? And you just get through that basic analysis of how your life works putting other people's labor and natural materials into the picture, you suddenly see the whole thing. And this also applies to nature because, you know, you like, you eat meat and you think, oh, cows, fields, what? And then you start asking some questions and it's like, oh, shit. So, you know, that, you know that statistic about like 90, 99% of the vertebrate biomass on Earth is now human beings and their food animals and their pets? You know, like... I have not heard that. Oh, it's some crazy number. I want to say it's 98%. You know, because basically vertebrates are very rare, right? In my immediate environment, the only vertebrates are some birds, some rabbits, and a very occasional deer and a few dogs, right? But if I look in, you know, 20 miles out further than that, nearly all the vertebrate biomasses in the 20-mile radius is cows, sheep, and humans. And that's it. That's all you get. Um, so you see what I mean about this thing of just like you look at what's on the doorstep? Right. Yeah, it's like the, you know, computer science interview problem about tell me how a, when you press a key on your keyboard, what happens yeah. and you can look at it on the, you know, physical switch touching this and then it gets sent over Bluetooth to this and then it's do, you know, like mm -hmm. being able to tug on that thread. It's amazing how deep you can go or the pencil creation, you know, how many people no one knows yeah. how to build a pencil, Absolutely. you know, think about all the processes that that went into that. But yeah, that, that's that's certainly not. It's certainly a mode of thinking that, um, you know, there's a reason why humans have these filters and can only process, you know, only process what's directly in front of their eyes at any, mo any moment. It takes a certain kind of, uh, distance to achieve that and to, uh, to be able to, to put on that, those glasses and look, uh, look, look into things. It's not like, a. it takes, uh, it takes a lot of, uh, glucose to, uh, to do that. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's labor, but it's just. Like, this is what you should be taught when you're taught geography. You know, geography really ought to focus on, well, how, how does my life work? You know, like, how am I in relation to the rest of the planet? Oh, that's geography. So that gets you a snapshot of the present, right? This is where we are in the present, here and now, that's the now. Then the question is, how do you forecast into the future, right? You get your snapshot, accurate present, now how do we do trend forecasting? And... <clears throat> the best source that I've found for trend forecasting is to look back and look at the trend forecasts from 50 years ago. 
So if you go back and read books like Megatrends, Future Shock, Third Wave, all the kind of Alvin Toffer, John Naisbitt, you know, all, all the books that were like the big fad books, Limits to Growth, uh, go back, books from the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, but mainly the 70s, when that was the golden age of that stuff. You go back and you read a bunch of these super old books about the future, <laughs> And what you can see is some of them have been very, very accurate, and those models are probably pretty good in terms of what will happen in the next 20 years, and some of them have come come to be complete nonsense and we can totally ignore them. So we can evaluate the long-term performance of the world models of those authors by looking at what happened with their predictions, and then we can look at the predictions that haven't happened yet, and we can say, these things are very probable. Um, The king of those predictions is a book called Shockwave Rider by a guy called John Brunner, it's written as a science fiction novel, but it was written in very close uh, coordination with a set of sort of academic sociology from a guy called Alvin Toffer and his wife Heidi Toffer. They wrote a book called Future Shock and various other things. <clears throat> and that book, if you just read Shockwave Rider, you can see with crystal clarity what was known in 1976 about the future direction of the human race. And it's scary, uncanny accurate. It's got things like drone war in it. It's got WikiLeaks in it. You name it. It has the most staggering predictions, almost every single one of which was true. Right, And so at that point, the predictive model in that book turns out to be incredibly accurate, and it defines sort of a very clear map of the long-term trends. Uh, so I'd say get hold of that book. And if you're interested in the sort of mapping the systems of your life stuff, There's a website, resiliencemaps.org, resiliencemaps.org. There's a document there called Dealing in Security. Click on that, and it gives you a guide to this kind of mapping the human job. All right. Well, I certainly have my uh, homework cut out for me. This is, uh, Vinay, this has been been awesome. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Everyone, uh, follow Vinay on Twitter, uh, at Leashless. Check out uh, Materium. I'm looking forward to buying some uh, on-chain gold ounces soon. And... uh, you know, love to have you back uh, when we we see how some of these things uh, play out in a year's time or so. Yeah, that would be really fun. And you know, I do I do want to stress, like, you know, it's all to play for now, right? The the old order is cracking. Inflation. Our societies were built on the war against inflation. We're losing that war. Climate change. People are freaking out. You know, did Joe Biden just decriminalize marijuana? Did I see that? He did not. He um, pardoned people who had been con- convicted for simple possession. Okay, of so marijuana. it's not quite Joe Rogan doing bong hits in the Oval Office yet, but it's coming. Um, I think uh, yes. You know, so the, all the marijuana stock that I follow is up fifty uh, percent. Fifty percent. Yeah, that's the number. So all of this kind of cultural change, like we were sort of in a cultural stasis period from nine eleven really until the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I use the term withdrawal politely, right? Um, Mm. Because war sort of binds up huge amounts of energy inside a society. The U.S. is sort of back at some, you know, as close as the U.S. ever gets to peace. Hopefully this whole Russia thing will settle down relatively quickly, pray God. But at that point, we're back in something like the 1990s world peace, Right. It's a crappy, horrible, degraded world peace. But if the Russia situation settles down and China doesn't go after Taiwan and it doesn't turn into you know, huge escalation, if those two conflicts settle, we're as close as we get to world peace. And at that point, what you get is the progressive engine runs like it did in the 1990s when we built the internet. So you know, this is not the time for people to give up hope. 
we could be entering the next global peace period. And if we're lucky, we can stabilize this one long enough to fight climate change while we're in. Um, it's hard to communicate to younger people how totally utopian the 90s was, but it was totally utopian relative to where we are now because the US wasn't at war. And the US is still the thing that is like the thermostat on world culture. If the US turns the heat up too much, the whole world has to open its windows. So, you know, if we are in a position where America is at peace and the energy is going into cultural progress, and we can start getting to grips with climate change as a kind of shared problem that we have to all work together to address, I think you could see human culture take a really surprising turn for the better in a way that will shock people who are young because they've never seen the world at peace. And the world at peace is a totally different place. Even the crappy, degraded 1990s version of peace is so different characterologically from the US is at war and the world is at war you know, hang in there. This might be about to get quite good if we could just get the Russians to settle down and if that situation settles and we don't wind up with a war with Taiwan and China, at that point we could see 10, 15, 25, who knows how many years of stability with all that energy freed up for cultural progress and getting to Mars and doing all the rest of that stuff. You know, I mean, it is tough out there, but like, do not give up hope. Things are probably about to turn in quite a good direction if we can get through these remaining two little bumps. All right. Well, I hope uh, everyone who's still listening, like, I, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think it ties up so much. Uh, you know, it brings me back to like some of the the early optimism I had about blockchain, even though you know things are going. Uh, crappy in, in, in many areas um, that there's this vision for for crypto, for for ETH, for for um, for these technologies that is not just a number go up technology, that it's going to be touching so many different areas and it fits into everything from, you know, personal money and how finance is conducted to all these existential risks and, and things that, you know, where the planet is going. So I Thank you so much for for tying that all together and uh, hope to chat again soon. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. And um, this was really fun. Uh, last thing I'll say is Materium does, uh, so about once every two months, we do an online meetup for all the people working on physical NFTs. Uh, Materium.com slash meetups. If you want to come and see a bunch of companies talking about the work they're doing, you know, we have kind of customers, we have competitors, we have other companies in the space. We, you know, all kinds of different people come to this thing. Uh, so do consider you know coming along, and if you're interested in speaking, drop us an email. Uh, hope to see awesome. you there. What's the, is that on Discord? What's the what's the location that someone should go? Uh, Materium.com/slash/meetup, um, and uh, we do it on uh, Zoom. We do it as a Zoom conference. We might switch over to Discord or something later on, but for now, it's on Zoom. All right. Well, I will go check it out, and uh, thanks so much again. Fantastic. Thank you. Cheers.